It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. My guest today on Cut to the Chase is Bernadette Hogan. She is the bureau chief for New York City City Hall. She started there in February, right when the new mayor, Mayor Eric Adams, started. So welcome to the show, Bernadette. Thanks so much for having me. So a little bit of self-disclosure first. So until recently, I was Nassau County Executive, and occasionally I would get the text or, or a press inquiry from Bernadette Hogan, New York Post, wants to talk about this or that. And I would always get a little bit nervous because, of course, as a public official, I wanted to get press. That's always a good thing. But I had to be careful. You know, it was in my self-interest to talk to the Post about something that may piss off the governor or, you know, maybe I'll say something stupid that'll be taken out of context. So as much as I I tried to be as helpful as I could, but I just have to admit to you that I'm always thinking about, (laughs) as an elected official, what's the best for me? So, you know, I'm also a former reporter, as you and I have discussed. So what is your technique? I always felt comfortable talking to you. I always felt like I could trust you. What is your technique to get people to talk to you when they might be reluctant? Well, that's a great question, and thank you. I'm glad you always took my call or at least texted back. I just Simple (laughs) courtesy is important, I think. Totally. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm reaching out to you and giving you an opportunity to tell your side of the story. And as a reporter, you know, my job is to tell the complete story. And when it comes to talking to people who I know might not want to even be in the public eye or even telling their version because... Again, they're worried about either making a story blow up or it might not even be painting them in a good light. I always tell them, I'm like, listen, at the end of the day, here is your opportunity. Here's your shot to talk to me and then help me explain your side. I mean, you when when I was covering you or, again, just anybody who, again, might be reluctant Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's it's. It's always good to at least have the option, but sometimes maybe they just opt to say nothing at all. And then it's just up to me then to interview other individuals or just tell what I know about the story, again, from reporting, researching, et cetera. But we always want to know from from the subject we cover, and that's always been helpful. So you have covered some very interesting subjects over the past few years. You started in in Albany as Albany correspondent pre-COVID, and now you're at City Hall with a very uh, interesting and unique mayor. But let's get back to your Albany days for a second. So I feel like we almost had lived parallel lives. You were at the (laughs) COVID hearings pretty much all of them. And I was in front of the television for the COVID hearings, waiting to hear what news would drop from Albany that would completely affect our life in our lives on Long Island in Nassau County and our health department. And what do I tell our residents and our businesses? Right. And it was every day was sort of like a little mini explosion. What was that like for you at the very beginning of those hearings before he sort of got into his whole shtick when it was just this immediate scary thing? Right. Well, first of all, I mean, the fact that Albany became the center of 
New York and also a parallel to Washington, I mean, to, to the country, because Andrew Cuomo, the former governor, was the one doing those daily briefings and dispelling information, was also pretty crazy because that all eyes were to Albany. And for me, I had worked every day in the Capitol, and once COVID hit, none of that changed. And it was a bunch of reporters and a select few number of staff and the governor and et cetera, a couple other elected officials who were intimately involved with these key decisions. And so for me, I would go in every day and I would I would watch first. I'd watch former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, see what was coming out of the city, make a couple calls, see what incoming was happening from Washington. And then we'd go into the briefing room. And for, for those of your listeners who don't know, the briefing room in Albany, we called it the Red Room. Very famous room in the state capitol. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I've been and, in there. It is beautiful. Oh, it's amazing. And it's so, I mean, if you ever have the opportunity, take take a tour of the capitol. It's amazing. It but really so is. Nobody seems to know how incredible this architecture is and the stories oh, behind it's it. incredible. Yeah. Totally. Right, right. And it's, and it's like being one massive museum. And it's still, you know, that's where all the power comes from in mm. New York State. Even Eric Adams has to go up for key things like running the schools and also getting money from the state for New York City. All the power flows from Albany, and that was shown throughout the pandemic. So, so Cuomo... I'm just yeah, going to interrupt for a second. I just want to say my guest is Bernadette Hogan, City Hall Bureau Chief of the New York Post. Uh, okay, so go on. Yes. So, right. From Albany and now in the city. So, so we go in every day, and first, once the shutdown happened... We, of course, in our personal lives, we had no idea what was going on either. We didn't know if that meant two weeks, if that meant a month, et cetera. And so the reporters would file into the room, and at first our chairs were really close together. Mm. No masks, nothing. Then they started spreading out, and then they started having us wear a mask. And the governor would come in, and he'd sit with his top aides. They'd all sit next to one another, and he would give us an update from the numbers. Okay, where are we? What's What are the hospitals looking like? What supplies do we need? What are the directives that he's sending out to the counties and the cities and what they should be doing? And what was really interesting for me, and I'm sure, and you of course know this as well, is that because everything was changing and information was just, you know, sometimes new directives would just come out during those briefings. And so everyone would tune in for that hour long, usually it was 11 or 11.30, and find out how the state was going to be proceeding with a new requirement or just directive to control the virus and what kind of supplies would be needed or maybe they weren't getting from the federal government or what they just wanted people to do that might have been different from the day before. Right. And so we found ourselves and myself, you know, I would ask the governor technical questions and his aides as simple sometimes as, you know, how old do people have to be to wear the mask? You know, a lot of parents would be Facebooking me or texting me asking, you know, my kid is 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 really uncomfortable with wearing masks. But it wasn't I mean, you know, at the beginning, of course, it wasn't a requirement. But they'd say, you know, do we have to do this? We have no idea. So we would have to ask these questions that regular people were wondering just to get through their daily lives. Yeah, we had the same thing in local government. We would, you know, these directives would be given. 
But we wouldn't get any further instructions. So, of course, everyone was asking us. And, and then when the businesses and all of their restrictions and right. everything they had to do, and they'd be calling us and we'd be like, well, we don't have the guidelines. We're going to get the guidelines. So we'd be watching the news. We'd be calling our friends up in Albany, you know, the folks who work for the administration, trying to get this information. Right. And sometimes you would have this this crazy new rule that what businesses had to do with social distancing and what days they could do mm-hmm. what. And then you wouldn't get the guidance for weeks. So I guess you're getting it from your readers. I was getting it from my constituents. And it was almost like, and this is, you know, I can say this now, it was almost like it it turned into the Andrew Cuomo show where it was all about, it was press driven before they even figured out how they were going to actually make it work in an operational way. Did you get that sense? Well, you know, what you just said is interesting because, like you said, you wouldn't have the rules for weeks and weeks. So I'm sure on your end, you know, you had to kind of take matters into your own hands and say, listen, I need to make a decision and Mm -hmm. give people answers that I am in charge of governing and also who are looking to me for guidance. So I need to make a decision now. And then at the end of the day, the governor or whoever is running things from the state end can call you to tell you if you're right or wrong. And what I found from my reporting is that then the division of counties or city government People started to naturally just operate differently based on leadership. And you saw what was successful and what was not successful. And also just the differing regions, right? Long Island is a very different place in the Hudson Valley than is Buffalo, New York, than is Syracuse, New York, or even, say, like Essex County and the Adirondacks. Um, What works for different communities really came out to play um, throughout the pandemic. Because, you know, if you're in a city... Obviously, it's more population dense. There's going to be less places to be outside. But if you're out in the woods, odds Mm. are you're really not interacting with that many people. So that I think a lot of frustration ended up coming out of those briefings because, I mean, you know, people have patience, right? You listen, you wait, you wait for guidance. There's there's a buy in and an understanding. But once it got to be weeks and weeks and then turned turned into months of lack of answers and just pure fact of not enough people to pick up the phone and a lot, you know, centralized government. The former governor, he governed um, from Albany and he governed through his aides and they went to him and got the decision directly from him. And then after that, if it got out through the briefing and not beforehand to the Mm -hmm. county leaders, Mm -hmm. then that was just the way things ran. And there's benefits and there's negatives to that, right? Because then you have a central control location, but you also have a slowness to get information out. And that's where a lot of the frustration, I think, built up and why you started to see stories and particularly what I reported on, for example, like COVID tests in nursing homes Mm -hmm. and certain nursing homes and nursing home administrators calling me saying, listen, I have a breakout and I'm dealing with the most vulnerable population. I have a small place, maybe 60 residents, and I don't have any tests because my county is small. My county up in Steuben County, which is very small, it's rural, but like we have a very bad breakout and we're just not allotted as many tests that might be going, say, to Putnam County or Long Island. And so those challenges and and once they weren't getting answers from the health department or the Cuomo administration, you know, they would come to the press. I I started talking to people I never thought would ever give me a call Hmm. just because for pure reason of 
you know, why, why would they ever call a reporter to try to get information and, you know, do a story? And I mean, gr- granted, that is my job at the end of the day to shed light on things that are not working and then try to get them to be righted. But I got calls from people who were saying, listen, I have no one, nowhere else to turn to. So what can I do? So you covered COVID. You were there every day. And then the story kind of morphed into yeah. one did, what ended up being the implosion of this very powerful governor. And, and I'm going to say, you know, I, I'm willing, have, as a former elected official, I'm willing to give another mm-hmm. elected official a lot of slack. Like at the beginning of COVID, you don't have all the answers. You're doing the best you can. But as time sure. went on, I felt that they, the, he and his administration really didn't trust local departments of health, local officials mm-hmm. to make decisions that weren't completely political. So the patients kind of wore out. And then... There's a chink in the armor, and as soon as the chink in the armor is there, I mean, we've, we've talked about this so much, everyone just completely unloaded on this guy, and it exploded. Right. And he was out. And I'm just, you know, that must have been so fascinating to have a front row seat to the whole time, to see the evolution of all of this happening. Yeah, yeah. No, I actually, still to this day, it makes sense now that he did step down given all of the events that led up to it but i remember watching in disbelief i was actually on a plane to seattle the day that he resigned Mm. and i bought the wi-fi because of course you know my family is of irish american descent so i think that i have some sort of like irish fae where i have like a sixth sense Mm -hmm. so i'm on the plane (laughs) (laughs) and i get the wi-fi and i watch I watched the former governor's lawyer speak, and then I watched the governor talk. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, he's, I can't believe he's out there speaking about, because at the time, of course, the state assembly had the impeachment investigation underway. The attorney general's report um, about the sexual harassment allegations had dropped the week prior. Yes. This was the second week of August. Yeah, I remember Um, that. I was actually, when when she did her press conference, I was in a retreat with my campaign staff. And wow. we halted everything to watch it. Yeah. And yeah. as soon as the she started talking about the trooper, I'm like, yep. oh boy, this is this is yeah. not gonna, this has got to end. We got to pull the plug yeah. on this. And you know that morning of the August third report, that was August third, and I know it because I was driving down actually to go on an assignment to try and get the trooper to talk to me because. The posts of my colleagues had been, you know, working on these stories, of course, for months and months. I was driving and it was, I remember, eight o'clock in the morning and we got a press advisory in the inbox. Mm. Um, I think I was getting gas and I see the attorney general, Letitia James, is doing a press briefing just before noon. And it didn't say what or how or like what it was about. No details. And I just thought to myself, this is totally the report. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying to call people who normally answer me and call back and they just radio silence. And I called the desk. I called my editor and I said, I'm going to go to this. I'm already, I'm in, I'm up in the Bronx. I'm going to reroute and go straight to the attorney general's briefing. Remember getting there. And then maybe 30 minutes beforehand, a source called me and said, this is it. And it was truly fascinating how it ended up coming down beginning of August. And then the way that the governor ended up stepping down in such a quick way. And I remember, again, he's speaking 
and something in his to- his tone and his language. Because, you know, you spend every day covering this guy throughout COVID. And then, of course, the years prior. But really, the Albany press corps knew Governor Cuomo the best. Because even if we didn't see him every day, I mean, granted, before COVID, I probably went to about 10 briefings a year because he really kept things controlled. Mm-hmm. He didn't do things out in public. You know, he didn't have this repertoire with the press where it was, you know, he he really kept things controlled. And so, but once the briefing started every single day from the beginning of March 2020 through mid-June and then, you know, it was June through the the the, the following month. Yeah, you get to really know someone to really know, well. Yeah, you do and you you wonder and he was always an interesting subject to cover because how long he'd been in office and also his command of power with those that he worked with. And so you, you kind of understood what he was saying or what he would you, what he would what he would end up making a decision on. So I remember he, he something in his voice and I thought, oh, my God, he's totally going to resign. And then he said he was going to step down. But what really led to that, I mean, I think just again to backtrack Everything kind of started to implode. The nursing home situation with COVID, family members, lawmakers, both Democrats and Republicans alike in New York and then nationally, were starting to really hit him on that. And because the administration refused to release information and data on how many people were had, had passed away due to COVID or related to COVID, in these nursing homes or after they had been transferred to hospitals because they were so sick. And the administration, maybe if they had done something differently, and of course this comes from now at this point years of reporting on it, but maybe if they had said, listen, we don't have a report on the data that's complete. We're uncomfortable with publishing incomplete data. We don't know. But there was none of that. It was always just a solid no or a stone wall. Yeah. And that really exploded. And then, of course, the book deal, Five million dollar book deal that he wrote about about conquering the COVID pandemic while the pandemic was still going on and is still going on, and then also the sexual harassment allegations that ended up coming out, which really was a surprise when they first did in the winter of 2021. I mean, and really, when you when you list it like this, he's really a one man treasure trove for a reporter. There's just so yeah. <laughs> much. And then all the people who want to tell you things about him as well. And so so you, right. you do this, you know, so you cover this for, for a long time. And now you're in New York City with, you yeah. know, as opposed to an all-powerful governor who had been in power for a long time, to a brand new mayor who some, you know, the jury's still out on for so many of the constituents. But a lot of people want to feel good about him. They want to feel good about the city. Right. You know, I'm in the city these days and it's actually starting to feel normal again, which is a great feeling. And I, you know, maybe he has something to do with that. I'll give him that credit. But this is an interesting time to be covering a new mayoralty who is a Democrat at a time when there are these sort of deepening existential rifts within the Democratic Party. And he's not shy. You know, you'll find a lot of Democratic elected officials are shy about criticizing the progressives. He's not. He's saying we are not socialists. How is it covering him? It seems like it would be a lot of fun. Am I right? <laughs> it is fun. I mean, it's it's every day, 24 hours a day. Oh, he is one of those kinds. He's nonstop. He is. I love he it. He is nonstop. Yep. He wakes up. He really he has a briefing in the morning with his police commissioner 
and then the health commissioner. And then after that, press briefing. He's either You're right. Saying, yeah. yeah, he does. He so does just something internal. just to interrupt yeah, you right. for a second. So his his police commissioner Keyshawn Sewell is someone I know quite well because I had promoted her to chief of detectives in Nassau County. Right. She was part of the Nassau County Police Department. And when I heard that he appointed her commissioner, I was I thought that is a bold choice and it is a brilliant choice. She is Right. You just have to see her posture, the way she articulates that she is a real leader and a no-nonsense person and a good person too with a really good heart. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. Right. Well, you know, I've just certain cops have now told me within the past couple months, one of them described to me a couple weeks ago, she's a cop's cop. And I think that's a really that's a positive thing that they see because it's a compliment because cops want to know that their leader, their police commissioner has their backs and also understands what they're going through. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, that she she ran a much smaller department of course yeah in nassau and now she's covering i mean now now she's the head of the nypd which is you know what is it thirty thousand cops it's a massive operation but one thing that people have told me sources have said they're like listen the leadership skills do transition downward and i think right now those that i've talked to are happy with her and seems like mayor adams does trust her but we'll see i mean look at the end of the day the summer is typically a time when crime skyrocket mm-hmm. and when there's parades and when um, people are obviously coming into the city and they're on vacation and whatnot. So cops are working overtime. There's also more crime. And this is really going to be a test. I don't think I, I think people are still willing to give the mayor credit for mm-hmm. making an effort and trying to clean up the city and bring people back. Right. Under former Mayor, mayor de Blasio, he really the cops soured on him because he I think everybody did. I felt like everybody soured on that mayor. Right. His 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 um, approval ratings were in the toilet. And then also he ran for president. He had the brief presidential campaign and his numbers were really low. I mean, if they even existed at all. And now he's running for Congress, which is also another interesting thing. Along with what what is it? A dozen people are running for that. Everybody's running right in 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 the new tenth uh, district in Brooklyn, but you know he really I think he really could have a shot given yeah. the fact that he is from there and he represented that area when he was mayor. And again, more people in the race, the better shot any per- it could be anyone's race. So that'll be a fun one. But but again, just going back to Mayor Adams, right? Like you know, one day he's in Washington and he's advocating, he's testifying before Congress to help with the gun violence, not only in New York, but across the nation and curbing that. And then he's at a party with J-Lo after the Tribeca Film Festival until 1 a.m. Yeah. So people also just want to know, when do you sleep? Like, when are you when are you working on these issues behind the scenes that we are not seeing? Because, you know, we see your face at every single, you know, opening of a new building or opening of a new restaurant and then also with elected officials. And I think 
you know, you know you I think it's important. In. I I always did my best to be as, in as many places as possible. I think it's it's sure. important to sort of have that connective tissue that people see that you're out right, right. and that you're approachable and you are working hard. And there's a lot of work. There's, obviously, there's a lot of work that has to be done behind closed doors. As long as you're getting that done, if you're out there, I think it's really important. And it sends the right message that I think New York City needs. Like, we, we were, we've got an active mayor. He's out. Right. He's a man of the people. And so so do you have to run around and keep up with him on all of these different things? <laughs> yeah, I had to get new shoes. <laughs> Did you really? I, yeah, I got I got Puma sneakers. Yeah. And they're the most comfortable thing ever. And... One day he looked down and he goes, hold on, before I answer your question, you have swagger. And I literally Googled, are Pumas cool? Because I thought Pumas <laughs> weren't cool anymore. But I was just like, these are the most comfortable things. I've got to keep up with this guy. So, but, you know, you pick and choose, right? Um, when the mayor does Q&A for reporters, you prioritize that. And whether he's in the Bronx or he's in Brooklyn. And, you know, he really has been making an effort to be everywhere, every neighborhood, every borough, and show up. Right. Like at the end of the day, he's a leader and he is a philanthropist for a city that needs to come back and lost a lot of people. Business, yeah, the business really community. is struggling. Yeah. Yeah. The business community is something that is a constant, constant concern. I mean, the Adams and the NYPD have started doing briefings for uh, business leaders. They just did a talk with like the big four accounting firms. And then also they're constantly meeting with other companies just to just to give confidence to their their workers and just say, listen, even if you're not commuting in and out, come back, like come into the office a couple of days a week. And that's, you know, they were, of course, pushing for five day return. But society has shifted in a way, you know, you can do your work remotely. But does that mean like how are you interacting with community and these Form like Midtown New York, for example, Midtown Manhattan, or even where I work in Lower Manhattan near City Hall. If I want to go and get a sandwich or even a beer after work, few and far between. I mean, there's it's so it really is so sad how many places have closed down. Um, and you know, I was my first job was in restaurants. I waitressed through college and even after college with my first job. I would do it still on the weekends. And service industry, those are some of the hardest working people. And there's fewer and fewer jobs. Um, yeah, and, you that's know, a pro- the, the governor be a and the mayor have been trying to get people back. Absolutely, absolutely. No, we got to have these businesses do well. That's you know, if you, I always say to my progressive friends, if you want to make this utopia come true, you're going to need people with jobs. You're going to need uh, revenue being generated. You're going to be needing someone to pay the taxes to pay for all this stuff. So, right. leading with a business friendly philosophy, I think, makes a hell of a lot of sense. So, you're reporting for the Post, which has a reputation as a more conservative tabloid. Uh, sure. Pretty uh, editorial boards, pretty conservative. They have fun making fun of Biden and you know all that stuff. Do you find that uh, some people don't want to talk to you simply because you report for the New York Post because of the politics, even though you're not political yourself and you know you may cover politics, but you're not political about it? Well, you know, if anyone ever says that to me, I say. Well, listen, if it's not me writing the story, someone else is going to ask you about it. Yeah. So that's you good, might as well talk answer. to me. Yeah. And and the thing is about The Post, The Post is an institution. I mean, the state of journalism these days, it really is unfortunate that local journalism has been decimated. And The Post 
because, again, been around for years and then also just truly is a great paper and phenomenal reporters, editors, et cetera, who work hard. We've been able to break stories and tell stories in a way that's different than other places. And so people that might not be of our editorial board's thinking, you know, I've some of my sources, the most left-leaning individuals on the planet. And then also, you know, Democrats. I mean, they understand the value of talking to a paper that does have the ability to implement change. And that was completely clear throughout the pandemic and still is clear now. Um, I enjoy able to tell the post. A story. I enjoy. It's always yeah. a good read. I always find really interesting things. And, um, you know, I say this as a Democrat, but I thought the coverage of the Hunter Biden laptop was really interesting. Uh, and then, of course, mm-hmm. I had to read the book. Uh, and I often wonder, like, why are the other outlets not covering this? This is such a such a big story and a relevant story. Uh you know, I mean, obviously, you got to report both sides. I'm not saying I swallow sure. everything, but it's an important story, but didn't seem to get the credit that it deserved after it came out. Right. Well, the post was first on that story. And at the end of the day, be it that the Hunter Biden laptop story or even just, you know, something that I might be covering, um, you have to trust your sources and you have to also you have to be able to discern what's news and what's not. And also sometimes you might be the only person that has a story. I mean, I've been in situations like that where I know for a fact something is true because I have, you know, the proper documentation, I have the proper officials or just sources telling me things. And I, you know, at the end of the day, you, you you know, you make a decision and sometimes that is nerve wracking, but, if you trust your sources and you trust the information you have and you go with it, then, then that's, that's, you know, that's really, you know, you say a prayer, that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if other places can't corroborate it, then, but, but again, you know that the story is accurate, then that's all you can hope for accuracy and truth. You, and you mentioned about really, journalism, yeah. you know, local journalism, uh, journalism in general, as the way, you know, I grew up with it. I'm a, I'm a, probably quite a bit older than you. The way I grew up with it, it it's just really changed so much. There, it, it, There's not, for instance, where I worked at the Daily News, I worked for years, there isn't even a newsroom anymore. And I was just thinking, right. if, if I was just starting out in my career in journalism at a paper that didn't have a newsroom, how much I would miss. Because right. when you're in a newsroom, you absorb so much just through osmosis, just overhearing things. Totally. You don't even know what you're absorbing. So you're very lucky as a young reporter right. to to work at a very vibrant newspaper in a big city that actually has a newsroom. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the post, being in a newsroom, you pick up on things, right? It's like little kids who they learn mannerisms from their parents or you learn how to act by watching. Um, I mean, truly. You don't even know that you're learning when you're learning. Right, right, right. And you, right, exactly. That's why, you know, it really is always just important to just keep your eyes and your ears open and observe. And you might be picking up on the wrong things and then also the right things. And then you're able to discern, all right, well, what am I going to, who, which, which, which am I going to emulate and what's going to be my role model? Mm -hmm. And I did learn a lot of that too, from reporting in the state Capitol. Um, I had worked for 
Spectrum News. I was a, a I worked for Capital Tonight under Liz Benjamin, Nick Reisman, Zach Fink, um, who are phenomenal journalists. And I learned a lot from them because I was a video producer for them. And that meant I went around with my camera and I interviewed people. And I really learned how to ask questions by just listening to them and how they would ask the subjects questions. Mm -hmm. And then when I started working for The Post, you know, you have, of course, all these questions in your mind. Like sometimes it's as basic as, well, how much is it going to cost? And sometimes you feel dumb thinking, oh, I should know this. But you know what? If you're asking yourselves those questions, yes, then then other people are going to be asking that too. So that's you something kinda, that I learned. Never worry about a stupid question. And if people, you know, never. think you're stupid, so what? You know, at least at yeah, least screw them. Yes, yeah, exactly. screw them. And you can't know everything all the time. <laughs> so we're just about yeah. out of time. I just want to leave you with two movie recommendations that I love about the newspaper world. One is yes. pretty light, and one is pretty dark. So the first is His Girl Friday. Okay. And the second is just a dark tale of New York City in the late 50s, and it's so satisfying. It's called The Sweet Smell of Success about a gossip columnist and the murky world of New York City in that time. And I think you will really like them both. I'll definitely watch. I, You know, of course, I love the movie The Paper. Yeah, that's a great one. That's on my list, too. Love that movie. Yeah, which I I watched, of course, late once once I started working for The Post and all my colleagues made fun of me for not watching it sooner. But yeah, I mean, watching these journalism movies, it really is just as exciting as watching a James Bond or a Born Identity movie because the twists and turns, you just never know what's going to happen. Exactly, exactly. Like life, you never know what's going to happen. And like you, have, life. you have a front row seat to all of it, Bernadette Hogan. Thank you so much. I'll continue to read your stuff and maybe we'll have you on when there's some big hot news out there. Again. Absolutely, anytime. Thank all right. you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.